Hello, my name is Amanda Rowland and this is Wild Food from the Rangelands. This is the first of a series of 10 to 15 minute podcasts where sustainable agriculture meets Aboriginal land management techniques. I'll be looking at what can be hunted, grown and gathered across the Midwest and the rangelands and address the burning issues to do with how we produce and eat food from a local perspective with an eye to relevant stories from all corners of the globe. First part podcast talks about how I came to be in station country and the start of a hunt for edible seeds. I spent the last two years helping to run Edar Station, a quarter of a million acre sheep station 50 kilometres east of Yalgu in the heart of Midwest WA. To orient the listener, that is 270 kilometres east of Geraldton or 520 kilometres northeast of Perth. I worked with three men, Jeff, my partner, and Angus and Toby, two brothers from down south. It was a blast, an absolute privilege to live in this wide open land with its huge sky days, velvet still nights and a full complement of interesting human life. The homestead was a generous size, four separate buildings positioned around a central courtyard and all enclosed by verandas. The buildings have a lovely feel to them. It was a pleasure and easy place to be with vistas of red dirt and granite rocks as far as the eye could see. When I moved to Edar in August 2015, it was the plant life that spoke to me. On the very first day when the four of us arrived at the station as prospective buyers, I left the three blokes talking shop with the owner and wandered down to the winter creek that ran behind the homestead. It was February and I had an inkling that some of the wattles I had spied earlier on a trip across the creek to the shearing shed were Acacia Victoria. They were. This was exciting. In bush food terms, the acacia vic, also known as prickly acacia or the bardi tree, is the seed used across Australia to create wattle flour. I couldn't resist and immediately started picking the seed. When we moved to Edar in late winter, I had a few local books to guide me, one by Estelle Leyland called Wadgery Wisdom and another by local Wadgery woman Dora Dan called Digging It Up, both invaluable resources for Midwest bush tucker. Another useful book is Arid Shrubland Plants from WA by Mr Mitchell. Good for IDing purposes, but geared to the needs of pastoralists, so any judgments made tend to be more about stock use. I read up what I could about the acacia seed as human food. There are hundreds of acacias and it took most of my two years at EDA to even identify the ones that were generally agreed to be edible. It seems that Aboriginal people would have been snacking on acacias year-round. The trees produce seeds according to loose seasonal patterns, but rain is certainly one of the true arbiters of growth. Some of the seeds hang on the branches for months, and I even came across a tidy little pile of seeds assembled by ants. I bet you the elders were onto that one. The acacia vic is the one wattle that has a definite season, affected by, but not kick-started by rain, Seed pods seem to make their appearance around December and to hang around into late summer. That first spring, I targeted the Acacia tetragonophila, known locally as Grara, apparently from the Walpiri language from Central Australia, and the Acacia ramulosa, Bogota in the Wadri language. These were the edible and easily available. I was to learn 2015 was a huge season from Carrara, 
By comparison, in the following spring of 2016, the seed load was literally tons less. Carrara is one of the most common in the rangelands. It is known in scientific terms as an increaser, one of the first plants to establish itself in areas that have been eroded through the actions of overgrazing, drought, fire and infrastructure. While it has potential to be a graceful small tree, it usually presents as a twisted, mean, dryland survivor with needle leaves that can inflict real pain and deep, reddy, brown, curly seed pods. At first I picked on foot, then set up a quad bike and went further afield with big plastic carriers attached to the bike. If I had a companion picker, we went out in one of the Toyotas with tarps and sticks. Some trees were free enough of undergrowth that it was possible to lay down a covering on the ground and whack the trees with sticks so the seed hit the fabric, the method advised as the best by the seed-buying outfits. I had had a chat with Jack from Red Dirt Seeds, one of the businesses who bought kilos to be used in rehabilitation work. While this method worked in terms of volume with the Carrara, the trouble is that it brought a lot of the needly leaves into the mix, and when it came to separating the seed from the pod, the needles became a too painful aspect of the labour. Doing the cleaning by hand, rather than via machine, I worked out by trial and error that it was easier for the end product to gather the seed using gloves by directly stripping the branches into buckets or sacks. Less needles, less handling. The actual cleaning of the seeds is hugely time-consuming. The most fun was to sit down with women who visited the station, to sit on blankets under a tree, surrounded by buckets, sieves, shallow bowls and heaps of seed material, sharing stories, talking, taking turns making tea, is to be aware of being part of a long tradition. In the time BS, that is before sheep, it would have been Aboriginal women and kids sitting under the tree. Old and young women and children and babies from the Badamaya mob talking and laughing as they handed on stories and knowledge to the kids old enough to join in. Probably with a lizard or some tubers cooking in the coals. 21st century style, not being blessed with a permanent and handy tribe, I did a lot of seed cleaning on my own. Hours of summer afternoons, sorting, sieving, Yandying, winnowing, listening to test cricket on the radio. Cleaning seeds is a beautiful process. Winnowing, using the wind to blow the chaff from the heavier seed, and yandering, yandying, which is the technique of separating the seed from the discardable material by manipulating it in a solid, shallow bowl, are both absorbing and satisfying occupations. In one of the sheds at Edar, I had found a flattish concave dish with ridges that I used in my yandying efforts. Eventually someone told me it was a miner's tool used to separate grit from precious metal. Perfect. I did experiment with using a seed cleaning machine in Geraldton to clean the Acacia Victoria. This was also time consuming, but noisy and not nearly as social. Also, I found I had to wear a mask at all times, as the dust from the process had a horrible choking quality. Where's the romance in that? But while saying that, if the market for seed grows, the seed cleaner will be the way to go for some species. It seems that most native seeds are roasted in some way before being ground and made into a flower. This gives the seed an even crunchiness and removes some of the potential toxicity. I found that the Acacia Vic was extremely hard. 
When roasted, they could be ground to produce an aromatic dark flower. But even roasted, they were so hard that they needed several passes through my electric stone mill to get into a flower-like state. The native flower idea had been inspired by the previous few seasons when I had immersed myself in the world of agriculture by growing a few experimental crops of spelt on land just east of Geraldton. I was delighted by the idea of introducing locally gathered and processed flour into my sourdough bread-making sessions. Really, I lacked the cooking nous to push the flour experiments and switched to the less exacting culinary task of using acacia seeds baked and cracked in a homemade dukkha. With ground sandalwood nuts, they added local interest to coriander, cumin, almonds, walnuts, pepita and sunflower seed mixtures. In trendy cafes, this seems to be how people are currently working with native seeds, so I was right on trend. A woman friend, delighted by the prettiness of the Carrara seeds, as most people are, had a brainwave about introducing it into granolas. This struck me as genius. Granola was clearly a growth industry, and this seed a perfect fit in any muesli for both appearance and nutrition, as the seeds are dense little black rocks surrounded by a bright orange aril, as well as looking gorgeous, the aril is also a source of fat. I followed up a few leads in Perth, meeting local producers in emerging businesses and leaving them samples, and then talked to a Geraldton local, local Robbie, long-time maker and champion of granolas, who was on the verge of launching a line of products under the name Red Lime Jones. Interest was high. Enthusiasm for the local product was high. But somehow action has not followed. This is an idea that hasn't quite found its feet, and at least part of the problem is the lack of nutritional information about the seeds. Yeah, we know it's a legume and can say it's 13% protein, but the info's crude and aimed at sheep producers. More needs to be known about what element, other elements count in its nutritional makeup. It took me another season to realise that the bogota, a type of pea that sits in a long dangling pod, is actually better when eaten green straight off the bush than when harvested as a rather greasy mature seed. Could this be the new pea green sensation? Would they freeze well? Could I interest bird's eye in adding bogota to their list of frozen goods? Again, how the hell to talk consumers into eating them? not to mention how to deal with logistics of gathering and distributing the fresh peas into main population centres. They could possibly be called superfood. This was the superfood moment in time. But in truth, I couldn't make claims for their nutritional value because I couldn't produce the studies that would feed into a marketing strategy. I could also not guarantee supply. And not to be able to guarantee supply seems to be the number one no-no in the world of food. And my experience with plants in general and the Carrara on Ida over two seasons showed me that feast and famine might well be the natural way of it. I did end up taking samples of the seeds and the seed pods, in the case of the Acacia ramulosa, gorgeous works of art in themselves, to Perth's premier restaurant Wildflowers in the Como Hotel precinct in the centre of Perth. The executive chef, a nice young man called Jed Gerard, never got back to me. Same results with bread in common in Frio. Clearly, my strategy needs work. Theoretically, the growing of acacia could be an agricultural as distinct from pastoral pursuit, down to the old farmer versus hunter-gatherer division. 
But could agriculture mean the beginning of the end in terms of the suspected nutritional advantage? I had read enough about wild food, thanks to Vic Cherikoff, grand old man of wild food in Australia, to understand that as soon as you take the wild out of wild food, you might lose the elevated nutrient content. In his book Wild Foods, Vic uses kakadu plums as an example. This tropical fruit has been touted as having a vitamin C content 100 times greater than that of oranges. Poor oranges, they're always being found wanting in comparison to some new superfood. But by the time an experimental crop of plum trees had been grown in neat agricultural lines, irrigated and pruned, fertilised and coaxed towards profitable production targets, the nutrient load of the plums measured disappointingly low. It seems that intense growing conditions in a harsh climate might actually be the key to increasing the good stuff in food stuff. In Vic's words, While we are slowly unravelling the mysteries of antioxidants, anti-inflammatories, enzyme regulators, adaptogens, micro-sugars and more, we still can't answer some basic facts about wild foods. Or to put it another way, the point about wild food is that it's wild. This makes me wonder about Scavola spinescence, the cancer bush, used by a surprising number of souls in the Midwest as a general tonic for wellness and widely believed to be anti-carcinogenic and anti-inflammatory. This is one of many prickly, non-glamorous plants that the rangelands excels in producing. Would it have any value as a medicine plant if it wasn't exposed to the baking sun and freezing easterlies of the desert? Cells forced to survive in tough conditions might well unleash the kind of chemical responses that could be the very ones that benefit people and animals. Anyway, back to the wattle. Landline, that peak ABC TV agricultural show, has had a few stories of enterprising people experimenting with farming acacia seeds. The problem is with the market. There isn't one. This rang true for me on another subject, that of sheep versus roomeat. At EDA, I argued with the people about the stupidity of us growing sheep for wool and meat, considering the vast problems the industry faced, and that's another story, rather than utilising the local meat that is hopping around in vast numbers under our noses. Well, there's another story there too. One of the brothers explained it to me patiently. It's the difference between having the infrastructure and the market all geared to the production of certain commodities, as distinct from having to create not only the legal conditions for a profitable enterprise, but also adapting or building the infrastructure and developing the market for your commodity, as well as the actual commodity. Yeah, I get it. It feels like I'm on the wild west edges of a wild food story that has hardly begun. Plenty of people and ideas are hovering in this zone, but bush food still feels like a niche that is yet to break through the mainstream consciousness. I equate it with the idea of passive solar and other energy-saving ideas in housing. Plenty of people get it, but it hasn't quite tipped consumer demand to the point where planners and builders are forced to adjust their business models to a new market reality. The state of the bush food industry is such that anyone looking on would think Aboriginal people lived in bountiful health for their 60,000 years in the rangelands on a pinch of lemon myrtle seasoning and teaspoons of rainwater. More on this later.